America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Canada, the United States ally, neighbor, and third largest trade partner with which it shares the longest undefended border in the world. Our guest today is His Excellency David McNaughton, the Canadian ambassador to the United States from 2016 to 2019. Prior to his ambassadorship, Ambassador McNaughton served as the chairman at public affairs firm Strategy Corps and as North American president of public relations consulting company, Hill & Knowlton. Currently, Ambassador McNaughton is the president of Palantir Technologies Canada. In 1604, French explorers Pierre de Mont and Samuel de Champlain established the first European settlements in modern-day Canada. The French colonists clashed with the native First Nation populations and signed a peace treaty in 1701. As the British colonies of North America became wealthier, the British and French fought for control of territory and resources, culminating in the Seven Years' War of 1756 to 1763. In 1759, in the pivotal Battle of the Plains of Abraham, the British defeated the French to gain control of French Quebec. France officially ceded the colony of Canada to Britain in the Treaty of Paris in 1763. Half a century later, an independent United States tried and failed to conquer Britain's renamed Upper and Lower Canada in the War of 1812. The British relinquished control of internal Canadian affairs in 1867 by establishing the Dominion of Canada, a federation of four provinces which formed the first self-governing Canadian entity. Canadian provinces and territories expanded from coast to coast and north to the Arctic late into the 20th century. Canada gained independence from the United Kingdom in 1931 and gained final legal independence with the establishment of a new constitution in 1982. Canada has long played a prominent role on the international stage. Canadians fought with courage and distinction in the world wars of the 20th century, in the Korean War, and the war in Afghanistan. Canada was a founding member of NATO in 1949 and has participated in every NATO mission since the alliance's inception. Canadians have also been at the forefront of some of the most important diplomatic and peacekeeping efforts of the Cold War and post-Cold War eras. In the 1960s, Canada passed its Bill of Rights, hosted the World's Fair, and amended previous restrictions to allow immigrants from around the world to join their nation. During Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's time in office from 1968 to 1979 and 1980 to 1984, he expanded Canada's presence on the world stage through achieving complete independence from the British Parliament, establishing diplomatic and trade relationships with developing nations, and joining the G7 while also promoting pan-Canadian unity. In 1984, 
Prime Minister Brian Mulroney was elected and strove for a closer relationship between Canada and the United States. His administration helped to establish the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was renegotiated into the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement in 2019. In the aftermath of the Great Financial Crisis, Prime Minister Stephen Harper expanded Canada's trading network tenfold with 45 new trade deals, maintained the world's highest per capita immigration, and Canada emerged as the top economic performer among the G7 with an expanding middle class. The United States and Canada remain top trade and security partners. Bilateral trade reached $2 billion a day in goods and services, and nearly 400,000 people crossed the border between the countries every day in 2019. Canada is a major leader in the supply chain for critical minerals. The United States and Canada work seamlessly together on North American defense and cooperate within international organizations to combat transnational crime and climate change. We welcome Ambassador McNaughton following the NATO summit, the G7 summit, and as North America emerges from the global pandemic. Ambassador David McNaughton, welcome to Battlegrounds. I just want to tell you what a pleasure it was to work with you years ago. It was one of the highlights of my brief time in Washington. Great to see you and, and thanks for joining us. Great to see you too. And uh, I uh, <clears throat> certainly enjoyed working with you. I mean, one of the things that people always ask was, what was it like working with the Trump administration? And I said, well, you know, there were two sides to it. One was working with the president uh, and the other one was working with some of the people, some of the great people that he'd appointed and you were one of those. Uh, and it was a pleasure working with you. You know, there, there, those were at times some contentious issues there on trade and everything else. But, you know, as a historian, I'm reminded that we've had worse times in our history. And I'm thinking of the, the two failed invasions of Canada. And, and uh, I would like to just begin with that topic, right, of U.S.-Canada relations. We, you know, we, we oftentimes just take for granted, right, the, the, the close relationship and, and, and our, our common principles and, and, and worldview and and what's your assessment, David? You worked very hard on the relationship as ambassador. You're observing it very closely now. What do you think are the greatest opportunities that we're facing in the U.S.-Canada relationship? And, and what are, are the challenges that, that you see? Well, you know, I think there are <clears throat> quite a number of opportunities. I mean, the world is, um, <clears throat> has changed a lot in the last few years. I mean, the emergence of the, you know, the deterioration of the U.S.-China relationship um, the reemergence of a belligerent Russia, <clears throat> excuse me, in Iran and, and, and North Korea. And, uh, you know, the United States and Canada have been allies for, for a long, long time. And we fought together. In fact, I think I mentioned to you, uh, you know, my grandfather was actually an American um, who was one of 35,000 Americans who came to Canada between 1914 and 1917 to fight with the Canadian troops in Europe before the U.S. got into the war, um, and and those those ties have been extremely close, and we fought together uh, around the world ever since. Um, I think that, you know, I would say we've um, we let the relationship slip somewhat, and and I think it was kind of taking each other for granted. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's really important right now 
do we look to reestablish those ties? It doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. And there are always going to be some trade issues back and forth. But I think that the, the you know, our, our NORAD relationship in terms of the North American continent are, are uh, you know, the things that are going on in Central and South America, and particularly in Venezuela and Nicaragua and places like that. I mean, we have a real shared interest in collaboration. And I think, uh, I think we did take that for granted for a long time. And I'm hoping that, uh, that we can, we can rebuild it, but I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, frankly, I really am. Yeah. We've heard, we've heard a positive message on, on this, on, on strengthening the ties between democratic and like-minded nations coming out of the recent G7, uh, the NATO summit, uh, but of course, the, their obstacles remain. We have polarization in our own country, a very uh, strong, I think, uh, uh, polarization along partisan political lines, social divisions that are exacerbated, I think, by social media. But of course, as you, you mentioned, we're also facing adversaries that are actively engaged uh, against us and, 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 uh, and trying to widen the gaps in our society. It, what's, what's your perspective on that in, in Canada and it's particularly in connection with Russian political subversion and what some have called cyber-enabled information warfare against us. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, obviously, um, this is an area and, and, and an issue which is of great concern. I mean, I think that what's happening now is that is that warfare um, isn't so much putting soldiers on a battlefield and, and ships, although those are still important, but it's also as you, the, the technology and the sophistication of the of our adversaries who are trying to um, exacerbate divisions within our society. And as you say, what's happened in the United States is that's become really quite uh, noticeable. Uh, it isn't quite as bad in Canada, but it's getting there. And I think um, you know. I, I, I worry that uh, Canadians haven't haven't had as much of a realization about the threat threats that we face, um, but they're starting to. And I know that, you know, for instance, if you'd ask Canadians four years ago or three years ago about their attitudes towards China, <clears throat> excuse me, they would have had a fairly positive view. I mean, we 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 do a lot of trade with China, certainly, you know, in agriculture and fisheries and things like that and in raw materials. But if you ask Canadians today about their attitudes towards China, they'd, they'd mirror, I think, very much the attitudes of the United States. And I've often said to people that the only thing that, um, that Republicans and Democrats seem to agree on these days is uh, being anti-China. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, you know, we, 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 we really have to figure out how to uh, work closer together, particularly since I think as you and I have discussed before, that the a lot of the multilateral organizations that have kept the peace and prosperity since the Second World War um, have broken down and aren't very effective anymore, uh, certainly not like they used to be. Right. And, and I just have to adapt to some of these new arenas of competition, the new forms of competition that operate in, in cyberspace and in space is a competitive domain now. And of course, uh, the Arctic is a, is a geostrategic arena of competition. And so I just wondered what your view is from Canada toward the Arctic, because we've seen you know, Russia, Denmark and Canada have been vying for, I think, control in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a competition 
uh, that, that I think is increasingly important because of global warming and the opening up of, of shipping routes through through the Arctic and as, as well as the, the tremendous natural resources that are that are there. What do you think that uh, about the you know the the UN Commission, the work that is ongoing on the Arctic? What what, what do you think uh, might result from negotiations to try to resolve the the some of the elements of that competition? Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I think that on the the disputes that we have with Denmark, I mean, there's one island that's under you know a contentious one as to whether we own it or they own it, and and there's some some disagreements with the United States in terms of you know passage through the Northwest Passage and, and things like that. Those, those are, are relatively, I mean, they've been going on for a long time, but we've, we've both, where we've all agreed that those are the kinds of things that should be settled through international dispute resolution and negotiation. Um, the Russians don't, don't play that game. And as we've seen over the last few years, they have been increasing their military presence in the Arctic and, and, and encroaching even further. And uh, I think that Canadians have uh, have become more and more aware of that, and and I think there's huge support for both um, you know defending our sovereignty there, but also uh, the issues around the environment, around Indigenous people. Uh, you know, it's a it, you know for us, um, it, it's 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 a very kind of a, a, an emotional attachment to the Arctic, even for those who haven't spent a lot of time up there. So I think you're going to see a lot more Canadian activity up there in terms of both the defense um, and, and also trying to build alliances with, with our friends to make sure that people like the Russians and even the Chinese are starting to, you know, talk about, uh, you know, passage, you know, passage through the waters and all these kinds of things. Uh, and, and the economic potential up there is huge. So it's going to be it's going to become an area of, of significant uh, contention in the next few years, for sure. You know, what I think is interesting is, is really how each of these challenges are interconnected. Right. There's a security challenge in the Arctic that's related to energy security. And yes. that, those energy security issues are connected to the competition with Russia, obviously. And. I wonder if you you talk more about how you see just the interconnection between really uh, economic policy, trade policy, and security policy. Maybe using you know energy as an as an example, right? I'm I'm just thinking about how you know the Biden administration has canceled the Keystone pipeline, but given Russia a free pass on Nord Stream two, for example, right? Yeah. Which I don't really understand. Um, which then I think probably forces Canada to sell more of its oil to China. Right, which gives China more economic leverage over Canada. That can't be good. So, uh, what, what? How do you see the connection between? And we've had conversations about this in the past, right? Between economic and trade policy and, and security policy. Well, you know, it's it's I, I you know, first of all, I am I am not a climate change denier or any of that. I mean, I I believe that we need to be doing. Things I think it's a, uh, an existential threat to the globe and all this, but I think that there's a lot of things that take place that are just bad public policy. And you know, right now, I mean, the Keystone cancellation was, had nothing to do with the environment; uh, it had everything to do with politics. Um, you know, we are in the last 
since the cancellation of Keystone, Canada is shipping more oil to the United States than it was before, um, and more than it would have under under the Keystone. But it's all going by rail, uh, which is much more dangerous, much more you know in, environmentally unfriendly. Uh, and as you say, I mean, you know, part of the difficulty with all of this is, 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 you know, allowing a Russian pipeline to go on while at the same time canceling a Canadian one. I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and we're, we, you know, the environmentalists right now are so focused on the supply as opposed to the consumption. I mean, you know, we're going to be using oil and fossil fuels for the next you know, I don't know whether you want to say 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, who, it doesn't matter. The question really is, are we going to be using those, those fossil fuels from uh, democratic countries who care about the environment, who are reducing their emissions, or are we going to leave it up to the Russians and the, uh, you know, the Venezuelas of the world who don't care one whit about any of that? And, and I think it, you know, part of all of this, I think, is that we've lived through an awful lot of years of prosperity and low interest rates and low inflation. And my my prediction is that that isn't going to last for very much longer. And as uh, we run into economic headwinds over the next uh, two or three years, uh, you know, a lot of these issues are going to come back on the table where people start saying, okay, yes, we need to make significant moves in terms of greening, in terms of getting to zero emissions, but let's not be, let's not be silly about it. Let's not leave the economic uh, uh, cards all in the hands of those who are frankly our enemies. And, and, uh, and I, just, I just hope we get to that sooner rather than later. Because right now the, the discussion is, is not, um, not even rational. It's kind of you know, it's, 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 it's not a healthy discussion. And, and just, we know it's infeasible to just go immediately to renewables, right? I mean, we've seen examples of Japan trying to do that after the Fukushima disaster. What did they do? They built coal-fired plants. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ger Germany tried to do the same thing, and they've given Russia coercive power over, over uh, Germany's economy, you know, by, by right. reliance on on, uh, on on Russian uh, oil and, and gas. And, and of course, the biggest reduction in greenhouse gas emissions ever, man-made man greenhouse uh, gas emissions, carbon emissions, uh, was was really the, the availability of cheap natural gas in the United States, right? Yeah. And so yeah. really, I think LNG as a liquefied natural gas as a bridge, nuclear power, these are issues that should be central, foundational to the climate issue. But those who are on the extreme of the climate issue actually are forswearing these essential elements of, of the solution. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that in terms of how do you think of, about, you know, a, a energy policy that, it, that, that helps fulfill uh, climate-related goals, uh, but also doesn't pose this kind of false dilemma between economic growth and lifting people out of poverty associated with energy availability uh, and and, uh, and and a climate disaster, right? Well, you know, I, I, I mean, we were having this debate when I was uh, when I was in 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 the government uh, when I was ambassador, and I had come back to Ottawa to have some discussions. And and one of the um, political aides to the to the uh, uh, energy minister 
uh, was saying, you know, all we need to have in terms of getting, you know, to net zero is political leadership. And like was shown in the province of Ontario when they got rid of coal. And I said, well, I happen to be uh, in the premier's office at the time. And I can tell you that the reason that we were able to get rid of coal uh, over a decade was because 50% of our baseload power was being generated by nuclear, that nuclear power you hate so much. And she was one of these huge anti-nuke people. And, and you know, there was, there was, you know, there was not much comeback from that. But, but you know, I, I, I worked with the oil and gas industry many, many years ago when the federal government in Canada had a really um, anti-oil uh, policy. And one of the things we found, we, I owned a public opinion research firm, and one of the things that we found was, you know, if it was the oil and gas industry out being advocating for a particular position, it kind of, it made their position worse. Um, because people didn't understand the issues, and we did a we did a three year long advertising campaign, and the and the tagline to it was, "Energy solutions begin with understanding," and all we did was provide facts. Uh, and over time, what happened is that that allowed for options to be discussed in advocacy. And I think part of the problem, and you you articulated it correctly, is that the two sides are extreme. On the one side, you had the climate deniers who say this is not a problem what are you doing and on the other side it's kind of stop all leave it in the ground people and 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 the the middle ground which is you know can't we find a way to reduce our emissions and and reward those who do so and penalize those who don't but not go to the extremes of of either side and i think you're starting to see i mean i saw that the you know, the business uh, council in the US and the oil and gas industry and others have recommended a carbon carbon pricing as being a way to to have a market-based way to to deal with this. But but uh, I, I totally agree with you is that is that what's happening is the extremes are are allowing our 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 adversaries uh, to get a leg up on us and it's gonna cost us in the long run. You know, and, and among those adversaries is China. And of course, right, this is a problem. <laughs> you know, carbon emissions don't respect, you know, countries' borders, no. right? And, and, and so, you know, China is is building 50 to 70 coal-fired plants globally a, a year, uh, making false pledges, you know, to do to do better, I think. I, I would I, I assume that they're false based on the track record, uh, that they'll do better in, in, in the future and so forth. And so, but how, how do you see the competition with China in the energy uh, realm and and are we kind of shooting ourselves in, in the foot there in terms of our ability to compete with, you know, with with uh, what is a growing threat to the world associated with China's promotion of this authoritarian mercantilist model? Um, I mean, do do you think we're some of these policies are counterproductive in terms of that geostrategic competition as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I you know, it, it, there have been some discussions that I've heard around. You know, you talked about trade policy. Is that if we uh, if we implement some kind of carbon pricing on on the you know the production the manufacturing of goods in North America, why would we allow goods into North America from countries that don't care about um, you know how much carbon they're using? And so I think that the next 
sort of trade tensions in the world uh, are going to be between those of us who have chosen one way or the other to to uh, limit fossil fuels in in all aspects of our lives and those who don't care about it and will be able to manufacture uh, goods at a at a lower price um, because they don't have they're, they're getting the cheapest alternative without worrying about the environment you know and then and I expect this issue is going to become, you know, front and center uh, over the next few years. Um, and I don't know how we resolve it, but it's, but it, you know, it's, it, it, this has to do with, you know, the whole look at um, the resiliency and the, and the integrity and the, and the security of our supply chain uh, in so many things. So it's going to be an interesting debate. And you know, how's Canada thinking about that, David? Supply chain resilience. You know, of course, all of us woke up to the dangers associated with over relying on China for uh, for PPE during during the COVID crisis, obviously. But now there's there's renewed concern uh, over other critical supply chains like pharmaceuticals, but then especially now renewable energy sources, right? Bad, battery manufacturing, access to to uh, to rare earths. I mean, it, we we may wind up trading our 1970s over reliance on the Middle East for energy sources for a you know a a a, two, a, a 2020s 2030s period of, of over reliance on China. So, um, how do you think about supply chains and the adjustments that are like starting to be made? It seems like internationally, yeah, they are, and 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 I think that the only thing that that you know I'm worried about is that 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 people use uh, the security uh, argument to become more protectionist. Um, and, and I think that's a real danger. I mean, during, you know, in the early days of COVID, um, when, when we were trying to get PPE in Canada um, and, and President Trump invoked the, um, whatever it is, the, National. It wasn't. It wasn't two three two, but it was. It was the Defense Production uh, Act to to ban a company from exporting PPE to Canada. Um, and then we kind of reminded uh, the administration that actually twenty five percent of the material that was in the PPEs that was being manufactured in Minnesota actually came from Nanaimo, BC. And we didn't have to ship that stuff anymore if you didn't want it. So all of a sudden there was kind of a, oh gosh, maybe you know we should collaborate a little bit more. So what what I think we should be looking at is um, is making sure that we aren't too reliant on on China and other countries that we we can't trust for critical. Uh, you know, materials. And, and, you know, we, we, we initiated, well, there was a lot of collaboration back when I was ambassador with the, with us uh, security officials about uh, rare earths and critical minerals and all that kind of stuff. And I think we need to do more of that. I think we need to realize that um, if we're going to be able to stand up to these bad actors, we're going to have to collaborate a lot more and not allow narrow protectionism in the name of security to get in the way of, of building things that are good for, for both. You know, it's kind of, we got to really get back to the one plus one equals three rather than, you know, just, just trying to do it for ourselves. 
Well, you know, Dave, you played a central role in, in the renegotiation, uh, you know, <laughs> redrafting of NAFTA, which became the USMCA trade deal. Anything you'd like to share about that process and then how that has informed your thoughts about North American uh, trade and and uh, and the potential associated with it, maybe also related, right, to the adjustment of supply chains and the need for efficiency, but also resilience in those supply chains? Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I think we have a really good uh, foundation uh, in the USMCA. Uh, it was a difficult uh, negotiation, um, but at the end of the day, um, it you know I think it worked out extremely well. Um, and you know, frankly, uh, and I've said this you know publicly before, um, I, I wouldn't want to be trying to negotiate the USMCA with the with the Democrats in power because uh, the president President Trump. Well, he was um, unpredictable in many ways. Uh, you kind of knew what you needed to do in order to get an agreement was, which was to make him look good. Um, that was that was. Well, and, and then you you also had Bob Lighthizer, right? Who is well, yeah, who's, who's a pro, tough, but who's, but it's just phenomenal, right? Yeah, yeah no, uh, no, no, no. Smart yeah. and and right. and savvy and everything else, and so. So we were able to come up with things that made sense for everybody, and everybody had to put a little bit of water in their wine and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, it was, it was, it was a good, it was a good agreement, and I think it's a good foundation. But if you look, if you if you look at, okay, how do we leverage that base agreement into something that is good for all of us? You, you kind of, first of all, I mean, looking at Mexico, and you say. You know, a lot of the production that takes place in the Far East and in China in particular, Mexico could produce a lot of those, those goods. I mean, they're getting their, their labor is cheaper, frankly. I mean, that, that's the, but they're becoming more sophisticated in terms of, um, you know, their technology and, and their manufacturing capabilities. Um, and, and I think that, and, and, you know, when you look at the immigration problem, the issue is that the reason that a lot of the Mexicans and Central Americans try to come to the United States is because they have no hope in their own countries. Well, it's in our interest to create economic opportunities for for those people because it'll take a lot of pressure off of us, and um, we will become less reliant on on China for a lot of the things that, that we we purchase. So I just think that. You know, the USMCA is a great foundation, but we need to think about building on it uh, to ensure uh, Canada's prosperity, the United States prosperity and Mexican prosperity. And then we need to think about what we're going to do in terms of Central and South America. In addition to that, I mean, I think about the, the hemisphere as being a place that we've got to spend a lot more time worrying about than, than we have before. Yeah, I think we took the positive trends in, in the Western Hemisphere for granted a little bit, and and you know we it's an area that we worked on closely with with you and and uh, and, and and the Canadian government. Uh, I think we worked together very well within the Organization of American States, for example, on issues yeah. like uh, you know Venezuela uh, and and uh, what to do about Cuba, um, and uh, but you know of course we're talking about NAFTA and Mexico is kind of a problem these days, right? In connection with the, the philosophy that underpins President Lopez Obrador's policies, right? It's, he's very skeptical of business and he's skeptical of, of, uh, uh, of, of really supporting economic growth rather than a, than a, a statist approach to the economy. 
Um, how, how do you see you know, his policies? Uh, do you see them as an obstacle? And what do you think the prospects are? I think some businesses think, hey, this is kind of unpredictable, you know, in terms of the Mexican government. And and they're holding back maybe on investments that might allow us to, to really uh, meet the potential of the USMCA. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. And I, you know, I, I, I know of some Canadian companies who have historically invested in Mexico and been burned uh, by, by seemingly uh, irrational changes in policy and things like that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there are some that have been successful and, and continue to be optimistic about about Mexico, I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that business can deal with all sorts of uh, regulations and and legislation, and but they can't deal with this uncertainty, and and I think that um, you know uh, Lopez Obrador's uh, has created a lot of uncertainty in Mexico, but frankly, um, you know, canceling pipelines uh, and changing. Uh, FERC regulations and 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 you know doing things that completely change policy in in the United States and in Canada we've done the same thing here uh, I think is going to hold back investment in all three countries and I think they happen to just be sort of the worst example of it but stability when you're making huge financial commitments uh, for the long term. The last thing you need is to have uh, uncertain uh, regulatory or 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 challenges. The, the foundation of our prosperity in the Western world is is the rule of law. Um, and sometimes you look at it and say, well, a lot of the politicians these days don't seem to believe in the rule of law, and it's not just confined to Mexico. Yeah, and of course, this this does help China, right? Who who. Uh, uh, benefits whenever they can have course of power over us sure. uh, based on o- over dependence economically. You know, you've had China engage in hostage taking is essentially with with Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who are now going in their third year of 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 imprisonment uh, in in uh, in China with you know with without any due process with without any uh, legitimate uh, cause. You know, uh, how do you think about reducing? Canada's, North America's reliance on 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 China, and are you concerned about that the Canada might be like the next Australia, right? Because of the way that the the, the Canadian economy is intertwined with the Chinese economy, uh, do you see Canada susceptible to that kind of coercion? And 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 what can we do uh, to to diminish that that over reliance maybe uh, on on China as a market uh, or as an investor uh, back into our economies? Yeah. I don't think there's any question that, uh, you know, in some respects, um, you know, well, we always talk about the Chinese being strategic, um, you know, sometimes they're just bullies. Um, and it, it, what would have been strategic, uh, in my view, would have been when the United States was being so, uh, you know, having difficulties with China, would have been for China to... Um, you know, be nice to Canada, right? And and to do make more investments and to have the, have more of our goods sold into them. And yet, what they've done in three years by the by the uh, you know by putting the two Michaels in jail 
for no reason whatsoever is just completely turn Canadians into being uh, anti-China and hostile. Now we've still got, you know, a lot of trade uh, relations, particularly in agriculture and and lobster and things like that. But um, you know, we we're still in a situation where seventy-two percent of our exports go to the United States of America. So um, you know, we do need to diversify our trade um, in many many respects, and certainly. Uh, what's happening now is, as is happening in the United States, is that uh, any new investment uh, we used to we used to screen them by the size. So if it was over a billion dollars, we'd review it. Uh, but there's now a much lower test because the Chinese were coming in and taking over small technology companies that had really good technology. And now, as in the United States, we're 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 we're, we're screening them for security purposes, not just the size of the investment. So, so you know, I, I, we're, we're a long way from being sophisticated about this, but again, it's another area where Canada and the United States should be cooperating and collaborating a lot more, just, just in terms of intelligence and information about what they're trying to do and, and, and which companies and which universities they're, they're uh, working with too. I mean, the university sector in our country, as in yours, has been you know, very much working with the Chinese over the past decade or so in some pretty sensitive areas. And and we ha- obviously we have to work on this together, right? It's it's clear. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of this recent case of a uh, uh, it's a, it was a Chinese Canadian researcher who was doing research with a grant from the U.S. National Institute of Health, and and was engaged in a in a in a, in a major espionage campaign, yeah, yeah. and and and, uh, and so it, it, I remember talking to uh, to my Canadian counterpart uh, Danielle uh, Daniel in in uh, 2017 about this. I think this is when about when Canada rolled out the new sort of what we would call CFIUS, the, yeah, the, yeah. the Committee on yeah. Financial Investment in the United States, and we worked on that together. And the hope, and I hope this is the case still, that we would. That we would uh, work together in a transparent manner, you know, across uh, the United States and, and Canada. Now, there's of course more scrutiny on on investments, U.S. investments in Chinese companies, right? And you saw the the Biden administration blacklist that has come out recently. And there's a recognition, you know, that that we at least maybe should not be complicit right, in in financing companies that are perfecting their technologically, you know, enabled Orwellian police state. Uh, or companies that are engaged in, in use of slave labor, uh, or uh, or developing the you know the most advanced defense capabilities, right. is, is that is that happening in Canada as well now? More of a scrutiny uh, uh, about uh, really Canadian investments back into uh, into China. Yeah, but not not as much. It's not that that hasn't been the big debate. It's been more. I mean, we're where the discussion has been is it's been about the investment in Canada, about, you know, is it funding of research and, and, and also, you know, um, our dependence of certainly in certain sectors on, on trade issues. There hasn't been as much of the, what are the Canadian companies doing in terms of investing uh, in China, although there's a fair bit of that that's gone on. So, um, but you know, I mean, it, you and I have talked about this before, and I, I, I you know, we are moving uh, into quite a new geopolitical uh, arena, 
and and you know we we continue to try to cling to the institutions of the past, um, and and some of them are still worth preserving. But um, you know you saw this past week uh, with with uh, you know some relaxation of trade tensions between the United States and and the EU. Although I suspect that had more to do with you know, Boeing's diminished clout in Washington than it did any trade generosity on the part of the Biden administration. But, and you've got NATO with, 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 with the Tur- Turkish uh, issue and the Polish uh, issue and, and a variety of things. And, and I, I, you know, I just, I don't think we've adjusted our sort of mentality or our approach to what is going to happen. I know they did discuss, you know, the China issue at the G7 and all this kind of stuff. And they, you know, but whatever's in a, uh, you know, the, the, the end of the G7 press release uh, has, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to be acting in concert. I mean, you know, um, so I, I, you know, I don't know where it's all going to go, but I think that we're going to have to really, really work hard at um, building back alliances around, you know, people who share the same values about democracy and about, um, you know, privacy and about, you know, civility and decency and 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 the rule of law and and I think we've let that slip and we've kind of uh, and and they have essentially outmaneuvered us in a lot of ways. And that whole, you know, Belt and Road Initiative in terms of the, you know, putting infrastructure in around the world and having people dependent on them. Uh, you know, finally, I think we're getting, starting to realize what's going on, but I don't think we've had an adequate response yet. No. And, you know, you mentioned Europe and, and the importance for us to work together with allies and partners rather than just have a you know, sort of better atmosphere of cocktail parties, right? We have to actually get things done together. Uh, I think that applies to our hemisphere as well, right? Where we see some really interesting competitions going on between political extremes, right? In, in yeah. countries like Ecuador and Bolivia, the, the trend seems to be in the right direction, right? Back toward democratic governments and, and free, free market economic systems. But then you see a doubling down on authoritarianism, right? When in, in uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, in, in uh uh, in Cuba, certainly, where the where the Cuban army, does, despite you know Castro not being in power, the Cuban army is still in charge. And then you see a swing kind of toward the left and deep skepticism about free market economic systems in yeah. Chile, for example, or, or in Colombia now and Argentina in the past in the in the last election. How do you see the trends in in terms of popular views toward free market economic systems and and the, and the alternatives kind of statist model that's being promoted? Uh, it, it, across our hemisphere in a way that's it seems like we're, we're it's back to the future, right? We're back in the going back to the same sort of uh, debates and 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 competitions that we saw play out uh, in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, and and you know I I feel I feel really badly for some of the countries. I mean, you take a country like Colombia, which went through a horrible time for a long time and then kind of emerged out of it with a with a democratically elected government that was looking and then all of a sudden, you know, descended on by, you know, a million plus Venezuelan refugees 
who were fleeing uh, abject poverty and starvation in Venezuela and, and, and their system simply can't cope with it. And so, you know, you, you then, you know, people, people look for quick answers. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know what the right answer is, but I do know, and, you know, we, we had some problems with the OAS and had to kind of think about, um, putting together a group that was largely OAS, but, but didn't include everybody because the, you know, certain members would have voted against anything we wanted to do. Um, not mentioning any names, but, uh, but, but the reality is certainly from Canada's point of view, we've always thought about the United States, our relationship with the United States and, oh yeah, Mexico. Um, and I think what's happened in the last five or six years, and maybe maybe a little bit longer, is we started to realize that the hemisphere itself is important. It's important in terms of drugs, in terms of human smuggling, in terms of, you know, a whole host of things. And, and, and the only way we're going to um, build a, a better relationship in the hemisphere is to find a way to uh, help get rid of some of the poverty in these countries. And, and the, the challenge in doing that is the corruption that exists within the administration. So just giving them money doesn't actually, you know, it just, it, you know, enriches a bunch of, you know, leaders. So I don't know what the answer is, but we got to figure it out because otherwise we're, we're going to be constantly, you know, having the Ortegas and, and, you know, the Maduros and everything else, you know, causing us, causing their people problems and as a result, causing us problems. So, David, I, I've asked you some tough questions here, but I've got an even tougher one for you. You know, we're in the midst of of the Stanley Cup finals, you know, when this program airs. and uh, But I want you to maybe make a prediction even further out going to the Winter Olympics. And I wondered in particular if you have any inside knowledge about what the Canadian women's hockey team is doing uh, to, to overcome, you know, that, that uh, their defeat in that amazing match in the, in the last Olympics. Right. I think it went into three, you know, three overtimes, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, and the U S team won, you know, for the, for the first time, I think uh, ever and, 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 uh, and disrupted Canada's, I think it was a 24 year title uh, as, as, as women's uh, ice hockey victors. So what are your predictions uh, on, on women's hockey in the, uh, in the upcoming Winter Olympics? Well, I, I think what we'd like to do is to uh, put the U.S. women's hockey team in the same position as the U.S. men's hockey team was after 1960, which is, um, you know, kind of the last time uh, they won. It's kind of a little bit 1980, long. 1980, you're forgetting 1980. Oh, well, yeah, okay. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 the reality is is that is that you know um, we we occasionally uh, want to be neighborly and and uh, you know make sure that you don't feel badly. So, uh, but no, I I I I I think that we will reassert our dominance in women's hockey. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, and it you know it's really funny you maybe raise hockey because um, when we were when I was ambassador and. And uh, I used to talk to members of Congress and business people, as, as well as you know, administration officials. And 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 uh, at a particularly tense time, uh, I said to 
a member of the Senate and I said, you know, um, we're Canadians, we're your best friends, your closest ally, we're very polite, we're nice people, we say sorry too often, but don't forget, we're hockey players. Uh, and so, you know, watch it. Uh, but no, it's, uh, I, I, I don't like to talk about hockey very much because I'm from Toronto and I don't, I, we, we don't play professional hockey in Toronto, apparently, so. I know you find it offensive, but you know I'm from Philadelphia and I'm a huge Flyers fan. Disappointing season this year, but I'm I'm still nostalgic for those good old Broad Street bully days of the of 1980s. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I mentioned to you that uh, that you know my my wife is a is a huge uh, Chicago Blackhawks fan, and when the when the Blackhawks were playing the Flyers in the Stanley Cup, I took her down to. To, uh, to Philadelphia and we were on the subway going to the game and she was wearing a Bobby Hull jersey. Uh, and, and, you know, this, this is not the city of brotherly love when, when you're talking about somebody bragging about the Chicago Blackhawks and, and the Philadelphia Flyers. So they, you know, they were kind of jostling her a bit. And one of the guys said, who's she? And I said, I don't know. I've never met her in my life. I don't know who she is. <laughs> but we, we escaped anyway. But no, it's uh, it's pretty intense. Yeah, uh, Philadelphia fans are enthusiastic, right? I think yes, enthusiastic. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> hey, David, on, on behalf of the of the Hoover Institution, I can't I can't thank you enough for joining us on Battlegrounds and helping us understand better crucial challenges and opportunities uh, that we face internationally, and challenges and, and opportunities that are critical to building a better future for generations to come. So great to see you and. And a, a real, a real, a real joy having you on this uh, on this program. Well, thanks very much, and 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 thank you very much for for you know your service to the United States and to peace and democracy uh, during your whole career. And uh, it's uh, you know it's a privilege to have been able to get to know you and and uh, look forward to uh, to visiting you in California um when when we can when they open up the border which is my current challenge that's what i'm trying to persuade everybody to do right now so but thanks very much i really appreciate it and uh look forward to seeing you again soon i look forward to it too david thanks again battlegrounds is a production of the hoover institution where we advance ideas that define a free society for more information about our work to hear more of our podcasts or view our video content please visit hoover.org